This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his preaching through the Gospel of Matthew, and today we're in the middle of chapter 17. In this passage, we encounter a tragic scene, a father forced to watch his son tormented by demons for years. But there's a second tragedy here. The disciples, empowered by Jesus to drive out demons, were unable to succeed in this case. Why is that? And more broadly, why do we experience failure in ministry, even with a lot of good intentions and hard work? Jesus uses this as a teaching moment, as he often did, and he explains where the disciples got it wrong and how ministry is to be accomplished. Once again, we have much to learn from these few verses of God's Word. Let's listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre. If you have your Bibles with you, follow along with me. Matthew 17, verses 14 through 23. When they came to the crowd, a man came up to Jesus, falling on his knees before him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he's a lunatic and is very ill, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. I brought him to your disciples, and they could not cure him. And Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured at once. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, Because of the littleness of your faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. But this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. And while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. I want to show you five realities about serving Christ imperfectly but faithfully. How about that? There are five realities that you and I need to assimilate in order to serve God faithfully. And remember, by faithful service, I don't mean perfection. Otherwise, none of us will qualify. The first reality, according to verses 14 through 16, the disappointing failure. It was a disappointing failure. Remember, there was a mountaintop experience in the scene prior to this one. Three of the disciples were in the Mount of Transfiguration with Christ, while nine of the disciples down there experienced ministry failure. They failed to cure a demon-possessed boy in spite of the fact that Jesus has delegated authority to them to heal every kind of disease. Remember Matthew 10, verse 1, Jesus told them, I am giving you authority to heal everything, every kind of disease. Jesus also gave them authority over unclean spirits. That's in Matthew 6, verse 7. So they had all of the tools available to them to complete that mission, but they failed. They had exercised this authority before to heal people and to exorcise demons from people. That's in Mark 6, verse 13. So this was nothing new, except that in this case, they experienced a disappointing failure. Now, Matthew used the word lunatic to describe what was happening to this boy here. And that is because of the superstition at the time, a misunderstanding really, that the position of the moon influenced people's minds. 
But the lunacy of this boy was really demonic-induced epileptic seizures, followed by a speech impediment. That is in Mark 9, verses 14 through 19. But Luke, interestingly enough, a medical doctor, adds the detail about the agony of this family here, how this father describes what was happening to his son. In Luke 9, verse 39, he says that the unclean spirit used to throw the boy into a convulsion with foaming at the mouth, and only with difficulty does it leave him, mauling him as he leaves. Now imagine the agony of this father watching this, this boy from from infancy going through this. And to add to his agony here, this demonic-induced loss of basic self-protection skills was part of the deal here because he would throw himself in the fire and then in the water, risking burning and drowning. So this aggravated the predicament of this man. And the reason for the severity of this case, we know that because this is a demonic-induced disease. Not every disease is demonically induced, but this one was. And the reason for that is because what Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 8, that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And that was quite literally the case here. He was trying to destroy this family. Now, again, this passage does not teach that epileptic seizures are always caused by demonic activity. Please hear me carefully here. We know better than that. We have studied medicine long enough to understand the origin of these conditions here. But this particular case, the Bible tells us, was a case of demonic possession that caused the convulsion, foaming at the mouth, seizures, and whatnot. But for now, I just want you to think here with me. If you are a Christian, a born-again believer in Christ, you identify with the disciples for the fact that you and I have failed before to complete what God has assigned for us to do. Now, he has not commanded you to heal every kind of disease. That was only for the apostles, for those, for that group of people, for the apostolic age of the church. But according to the Bible, here's what he has given to you. According to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Did you hear that, church? You have received from God everything pertaining to life and godliness. So you have every tool at your disposal to live a life that honors God. For example, by His enabling grace, you have the ability to overcome every type of sin and live a life of cleanliness. You don't have to be defeated by sexual temptation. You don't have to be defeated by laziness or critical spirit or a a divisive attitude, or excessive worry. But if you are like me and the nine disciples that stayed behind here, you have failed before to accomplish what God wants from you. That's the bad news. The good news is that God's approval of you does not depend on your performance. Isn't that great? His approval of you does not depend on your performance. If that was the case, none of us would ever measure up. And the reality is, on our own power, on our own flesh, because of the sinfulness of our own heart, we don't measure up. But if you are a born-again believer in Christ, you already have his acceptance. Paul says that very clearly. He asks rhetorically, if God is for us, who can be against us? That's in Romans 8 verse 31. In other words, God is for you, my friend, if you're a believer in Christ. It doesn't mean he approves of everything you do. It means that you have already access to his presence. You have access to godliness and everything pertaining to life and godliness. You have every tool at your disposal to accomplish what he wants you to accomplish. And more than that, to be what he wants you to be. Because the Bible says he began a good work in you. And he never leaves his work undone. So you already have God's acceptance. 
Paul continues when he says, He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him give us freely all things? Church, the Bible says what it means, and it means what it says. When the Bible says he will give you all things, that includes the ability to accomplish what he wants you to accomplish for his honor, for his glory, and to be the person he wants you to be. In spite of disappointing failures, you already have his acceptance, you already have his appreciation, and furthermore, you have his affection. Romans 8, verses 38 to 39, Paul says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing that includes demons, will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that's the good news, church. You and I have experienced ministerial failure before we will eventually experience failure also because we are imperfect we are sinners but we already have everything at our disposal to accomplish what he wants us to accomplish and to be what he wants us to be how comforting to know that god's grace not my performance defines my relationship with him are we clear on that church his grace not your performance defines your relationship with him people may have written you off as a failure, maybe even people from your family, but God sees you as a diamond in the making. We recognize failures of the past, but we don't stay there. We need to keep moving forward, looking forward to that prize, the gold of the upward call of Christ, which leads us to the next reality. In your growth process, in my growth process, we will face disappointing failures, and we may even encounter divine frustration. That's in verse 17. Now, while Jesus did not dismiss his servants, his disciples, he did not hide his frustration. And that is very clear in his tone of voice. And I want you to know that by speaking firmly, Jesus demonstrated righteous and sinless indignation. That's what Jesus did. He rebuked everyone in the scene, including the Father. Imagine that. There was a crowd around him, Luke tells us in Luke 9, verse 37. So the crowds were, were gathered. That father was there and the nine disciples and the other three that came down from the mountain with him. So he's rebuking everyone with a sharp rebuke, with a tone of voice that was unmistakable. And if you're reading this for the first time, his reaction may sound a little too harsh for our postmodern, easily offended years. This is possibly a paraphrase of Deuteronomy 32, verse 20, referring to the Exodus generation. This is God speaking, I will hide my face from them. I will see that their end shall be, for they are a perverse generation, sons in whom is no faithfulness. Now, I can't tell you for sure that Jesus is paraphrasing that passage, but if this is the case, what Jesus is doing is placing the two generations on the same level of unfaithfulness, which makes perfect sense. Because the generation in Exodus saw the glory of God. They witnessed the glory of God. This particular generation here was looking at the very Son of God. And they manifested their lack of faith by failing to trust God. Specifically, the disciples who had been given the responsibility to complete that mission and didn't do it. By failing to heal the boy, the disciples then acted as if Christ was a liar. Imagine that, because Jesus says, you will accomplish this, but they couldn't. So by not accomplishing what Christ told them to do, they're acting as if Jesus is not speaking the truth. That is serious business. But I want you to see that, again, this is a lesson to be learned. It doesn't mean the end of the ministry of these guys. It's a great opportunity. 
This is something that he needed to address in order to shepherd the people, his disciples specifically, towards faithful service and correction and victory. And again, failure did not define the disciples' service. In fact, you know the story, Peter even experienced more failure after this. He denied his Lord publicly, John 18, verse 25. So this wasn't the last time that Peter, at least one of the disciples, would experience failure. And likewise, church, failure doesn't define you. Failure is not what defines you, unless you are unwilling to allow Jesus to restore you. And the reason why many people refuse to be restored by Jesus is because the process is painful and sometimes humiliating and time-consuming. He does not need you. He does not need me to accomplish his sovereign purposes. That's a fact. But he gives us the joy and the honor to serve him imperfectly but faithfully, which leads us to the next point. In preparation for faithful service, in our growth process, we must assimilate and embrace the fact that we will face disappointing failures from time to time, and they might trigger divine frustration. But we will also witness the dynamic faithfulness. Verse 18, the dynamic faithfulness. The all-powerful, compassionate, and kind Jesus finished the job that the disciples were unable to do. And in fact, let me take you to the gospel of Mark, because Mark elaborates on what happens next. So this is what Mark says, Mark 9, verses 20 to 27. They brought the boy to him, and he saw him. Immediately, the spirit threw him into a convulsion. And falling on the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And he asked his father, this is Jesus asking the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. It has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. After crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, he came out. And the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him, and he got up. So that's the story in the parallel account in the Gospel of Mark. And three details immediately jump out in this particular description of this event. The first detail I want you to see is that Jesus did not need information. When he asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? He already knew the answer to that because Jesus shares the attribute of omniscience with the father. He never ceased to be God, not even for a moment when he was on earth. So he asked this question so that we can understand and the people around can understand the tremendous agony that this family was facing and the enormity of the problem that he later illustrated with the mountain. So... That's the first observation. The second is the response of the man. The man responded in exemplary humility. He could have said, well, I guess he's going to be rude to me like this. I'm going to walk away and go. Because remember, Jesus says, oh, how long shall I be with this perverse generation? The man could have said, well, I guess he doesn't want anything to do with me. But no, he responded in humility. And thirdly, Jesus took the boy by the hand. So let me suggest a couple lessons from all of these. All right. First, one of the greatest prayers you can ever utter 
is from the mouth of this man here. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. When you're ready to pray that prayer, my friend, you are on your way to spiritual maturity. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. This is a recognition of your insufficiency, contrasted by the sufficiency of God. I said, Lord, my faith is defective. Please help me. I need you to equip me to get to that level. The second lesson is that Jesus took the boy by the hand. The Bible is indicating the personal touch of Jesus here. He's not a distant God. He's a personal Savior, one who is involved personally in your life. He will personally see to it that you get up again. When you are beaten, bruised, and battered by the enemy, Jesus will offer to take you by the hand, just like he did with that boy. In fact, he does that today. His compassionate hand is extended to you. Let's continue. In our growth process, we will face the disappointing failures from time to time that may trigger divine frustration, but we will witness the divine faithfulness of Christ. Here's the next reality in preparation for faithful service. The defective faith. We all have defective faith, according to verses 19 through 20. All of us lack the faith that we need. We always need help from God. And the disciples teach us a good lesson here. They did the right thing by asking Jesus the reason they failed. Most of us don't even want to know the reason. We don't even want to talk about it because it's so painful to be reminded of our failures. We just want to file it away, put it in the cabinet, say, I never want to deal with this again, only to encounter the same problem later in a different season in life, in a different place, in a different church. So their humility gave Christ an opportunity to identify the cause of their ministerial failure. They had defective faith. Jesus tells them. They say, well, why did we fail? Jesus says, because of the littleness of your faith. He's not talking about quantity of faith. You can't measure faith in those terms. It's quality of faith. He's talking about the defectiveness of your faith. The fact that your faith is not enough. And the point that Jesus is making here is that faith, no matter how small, no matter how small, directed at the right person, will always be affected. See? It's not the size of the faith. It's the object of your faith. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, then you will always be able to accomplish what he wants you to do and to be. Now, if your faith is in yourself, then you're in trouble. If your faith is in the gift that you receive from God, not in the gift giver, then you are in deep trouble. And he used the metaphor of moving mountains because that was the common figure of speech at the time to communicate victory over incredibly difficult situations. And this was a case. This particular demonic possession was an incredibly difficult one to deal with. It wasn't impossible for the disciples to deal with. Christ told them to do it, but their defective faith prevented them from accomplishing what Christ wanted to do. The nothing will be impossible to you clause. We need to understand that because you'll be surprised at how many people misunderstand and misapply this. When Jesus says nothing will be impossible to you, he is not talking about the fact that you will go and win a beauty contest. The point is the nothing will be impossible to you clause must be qualified and understood within the context of God's will. Okay, let's not yank this verse out of context like many people do and start claiming this. Nothing will be impossible to me. I'm going to win the lottery. I'm going to be successful. I'm going to go into this business enterprise here and nothing will be impossible to me. No, faithful believers sometimes fail miserably at businesses. So let's get that out of the way here. The nothing will be impossible to you must be understand in the proper context. And the context is faithfulness to God because if you have faith in Christ if the object of your faith is correct that means your will will align with his will 
See, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you will say, Lord, what I want to do doesn't matter. What matters is what you want me to do. Then that will not be impossible to you. Do we get that? Now, the explanation that Jesus gives for their failure is this. They failed because they did not pray properly or at all. Because that's what Mark tells us in Mark 9 verse 29. This type of demon only comes out with much prayer, he says. You, you, you didn't pray enough. You didn't pray perhaps at all. Perhaps they got too confident in the gift of healing rather than the gift giver. That is not unusual. We do it all the time. I have done it before, I admit. And you do it too from time to time. We often face the temptation to rely on our ability rather than on the grace of God. Familiarity with ministry perhaps helps us do that. Preachers do this often. I've heard flawless homilies before, impressive in rhetoric, but completely devoid of divine power. So the lesson is clear about this reality that we must assimilate here. Effective faith directed at the right person, as small as a mustard seed manifests in prayer like this. Lord, every resource I have comes from your hand I refuse to even attempt to do this by my own power. So the lesson is prayerlessness precedes failure. You will fail every time if you fail to pray. If you fail to go to God and say, Lord, is this your will? Is this what you want me to do? Conversely, prayerfulness proves faith. And that is what Jesus is talking about here. And James confirms this later on when he says, The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. That is in James 5, verse 16. So let's conclude. In our growth process, we will face disappointing failures that might trigger divine frustration. We will witness the dynamic faithfulness of Christ. We will be confronted by our defective faith, but we will also see the distinct foundation. Okay, and that's how he concludes this whole thing, verses 22 through 23. Once again, Jesus prophesied or, or predicted his passion, followed by his resurrection. This is a third time in a short period here that Jesus predicts his death, burial, and resurrection. Only the difference here is that this time he adds the fact that he will be betrayed. That's a detail they didn't have before. He will be betrayed. And they must have been terrified here. Wait a minute, we already failed Jesus Christ. One of us is going to stick the knife on his back? And the Bible says that they still did not understand the resurrection as part of God's redemptive plan. But clearly, God granted them understanding sometime after this because they preached the message so boldly about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. They preached it, and that was the foundational message of the early church. What we learn from this is this, church, in our process of growth here in terms of application, understanding the gospel as the atoning death followed by the burial and resurrection of Christ is foundational for faithful service to God. The reason I say this is you will be surprised at how many church-going people have no idea what the gospel is and have no idea how someone can be saved. Thankfully, again, not here at Grace Baptist Church. Jesus then affirms his death, burial, and resurrection for the third time. And again, what aggravated the grief of the disciples was they were informed that somebody or maybe some people would betray him, otherwise loyal followers. Again, the message is clear. They just acknowledged, they just witnessed another miracle, the exorcism and the healing of this boy. They had reason to rejoice, but wait a minute. We're hearing about betrayal? Well, no wonder they grieved. And the point here is this, church. Jesus does not hide the truth about the reality 
of ministry about the painful process of spiritual maturity, which includes pain, suffering, and betrayal. Betrayal is part of maturing in Christ. If you want to be faithful to Jesus Christ, to preaching the gospel, doing what he wants you to do, making disciples of every nation, honoring him with your life, you will experience betrayal. People will backstab you. That is a part of ministry. And the reason for that, church, is because we are not greater than our master. The Bible says this in John 13, verse 16, you are not greater than your master. If you really want to follow Jesus Christ, you must be willing to suffer shame and betrayal and even physical pain if necessary for his honor and for his glory. It's part of life. Even unbelievers experience it. But when we do for the sake of the gospel, we must be like the disciples and consider a great honor to suffer for his sake. I wish I could promise you that the Christian life is one mountain experience after the next, right? Like we experienced a couple of weeks ago with the mountain of transfiguration. Peter didn't want to come down from the mountain. I wouldn't want to come down either. But then there's a valley right after that. There's failure right after that in restoration here. If you are a Christian, welcome to the team of unworthy servants, imperfect people who Jesus recruited to be used in his construction project, the church. You have failed before and will fail again. But by his enabling grace, not only will he restore you, he will equip you to serve him faithfully. Not perfectly, but faithfully. And that is reason for us to rejoice tremendously. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org. Or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, for more information about our church and this media ministry. Plus, we're always looking for people just like you to help us spread the gospel around the world. This broadcast is provided to you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time, this is Truth With Grace.